one way, just one way to be reconciled, just one. We are reconciled through Christ. So the title of the sermon is Reconciled, and we are going to be in Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. And it says this, for while we were yet, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, We have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So point number one, Christ came in spite of our weaknesses. He came in spite of our weaknesses. Christ did not wait for you to be good enough to save. So, sorry sports fans, all those out there that are hoping that they'll measure up and be good enough, not happening. Christ didn't wait for you to be good enough and we all ought to be very, very grateful for that. What does the verse say? The verse says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So not at the time when you and I think that we ought to be saved. No, it was at the right time. It was was in God's timing. Christ came and died for the ungodly. I want you to notice two descriptions of those that are outside of Christ. So this is many people that you and I know. What are those two descriptions? Well, look at them real quick. It's weak and ungodly. This describes those that are outside of Christ. So weak against what? Well, weak against the power of the flesh. You and I all know this very personally, all right? So it means that no matter what happens, we really have a difficult time holding ourselves back from yielding to the power of temptation, because our flesh is naturally drawn to those things. And all of those things aren't necessarily evil or wicked, but we seek after them in ways that are evil or wicked, or the things that are evil or wicked, we just throw everything off and chase after them wholeheartedly. So we see the description as weak, but we also see the description as ungodly. So the ungodly are those that lack reverence for God. So this is the description for those who are outside of Christ. They are weak against the power of the flesh, so they yield to its power consistently. Notice that. They yield to its power consistently. So we all like to be consistent, and in sin, usually people are pretty consistent. We seek after the same things again and again. And even if they had the strength to resist temptation, you and I were there. Outside of Christ, we were there. Even if we had the strength to resist temptation, they wouldn't because they really don't care what God thinks. So that twofold description, they are weak and they are ungodly. 
Look what Romans 5, 6 through 8 says. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Look at that portion of verse 7 again. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. So life outside of Christ is all about a four-letter word. What is that four-letter word? Well, it's self. Outside of Christ, all we care about is the gospel of me, the gospel of self. All we care about is fulfilling our desires nonstop. Whatever we have to do to get what we want in the moment, that's what we do. See, in Christ, when we're freed, we are freed from that power. We're freed from the power of temptation. Can we still be tempted? Yes, but you are free in Christ to leave that temptation alone, to depend upon the power of the Spirit. The ungodly, those who are unsaved, they lack that ability. Right? So when temptation comes, they just so desperately want to serve themselves that they will yield to those things. Think about this for a second. Genesis 3, we kind of see the gospel of self kind of rise up in front of us. And it looks like this. It says in uh, verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why did they do that? Because they were ashamed of themselves. Why were they ashamed of themselves? Because they broke God's law. Because God gave them everything but one thing, and that one thing they wanted. And they took it. God said, you can eat of any tree. Now think about that for a second. Was the tree of life off limits at that point? No. Not at all. The only tree that was off limits was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, you shall not eat of it, for when you eat of it, you shall surely die. And they ate of it. And now, they experience shame. Look at verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, did God know whether or not Adam and Eve had eaten from that tree? All God's people said, yes. He knew. Then why ask? Because this is the opportunity for Adam to come clean about his sin. But what does he say? Just look here. Pay attention to this. This is the gospel of self. It says in verse 12, The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So they made a choice. Now Adam wants to save himself, so he blames Eve, because all he's about at this point is serving himself. Eve wants to save herself, so she blames the serpent. See, this is how 
they're going to save themselves, how they're going to preserve themselves. They're going to push the blame off on someone else, but they can't. They are responsible for what they did. Life outside of Christ is about satisfying one's own desires above all else. And the good thing about seeing this as a Christian is we can get in the head of those that we've been talking to for so long and we can figure out why they live the way they live. And this is not some sort of religious snobbery at all. We want them to see the light. We want them to live for Christ. We want them to live an abundant life here in this life, not just in the one to come. We want this for them. So it's not us turning our nose up in the air and saying, oh, that's what the ungodly do. No. We're examining this because we know what this looks like because we came from it. And we realize not that we are better than that now, but we realize how fallen we are and how much we need our Savior, Jesus Christ. Not just for the day when we made that profession, we need him just as much today. So life is about satisfying one's own desires above all else outside of Christ. Notice also, the unbeliever is weak regarding fighting the temptations of the flesh. Can't do it. Look what the verse says. While we are still weak. Weak against what? Weak. We can save ourselves. We couldn't fight the temptations of the flesh. We are weak. I want you to notice something else from these verses. Notice the idea of self-sacrifice here. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. You see, Self-sacrifice outside of Christ does exist, and the Bible does acknowledge that. So don't pretend for a second like um, there are no unbelievers that ever are unwilling to sacrifice themselves. We know that they will. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say that only those who are Christians are willing to sacrifice themselves, to put themselves on the line. Look at the war heroes we have throughout history. You will see a replete chronology of men and women both Christians and unchristians that have laid down their lives for the lives of others. But that's not what the verses say. The verses do not say that uh, unbelievers will never sacrifice themselves. What's it say? It says one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. So the Bible does fully acknowledge that this happens, but it's rare. It's a scarcity. It's not something that just every single day everyone is just doing this. That's, that's not the way that it is. The Bible acknowledges that people will lay down their lives on the line, even sacrifice themselves for the life of another. And it also acknowledges that this is rare. I want you all to notice, looking at uh, Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Finally did it. Favorite verse in the whole Bible. Finally get to preach it. This verse strikes a chord with me and, and has for a long time. Because God doesn't wait for us to be perfect. He doesn't wait for us to be in the, in the perfect position. All the stars don't have to align. God looked and saw you imperfect. And... He sent his son to die for you. Shows his love 
And that not while you're working on being perfected, but while you're a filthy, impure sinner, he sends his son to die for you and I. So amazing. See, because here's the honest truth. The Bible says Christ didn't die for anyone because of their merit. Christ didn't die for you and I because, oh, we finally did what he wanted us to. Christ (laughs) did not die for good people. For good people who are self-righteous, nope. He didn't die for them. Remember, it's not for the well that the physician came, but for those who are sick. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't die for the weak and ungodly. All right? Christ didn't die for those who would, would want to stay in that position and continue to reject him. Christ died for those who would surrender, who would bend their neck, who would bow down at the foot of the cross and say, yes, I am weak, yes, I am ungodly, and who would want to live a life with God not only as their God, but as their Father, surrendered to Jesus Christ. Point number two, apart from justification, we are enemies of God. This is so important for us to realize. As we're thinking about the world, and we're thinking about those unbelievers that we're praying for. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from, excuse me, by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, while we were enemies, everyone see what that says? It says we were enemies. And I tell you this, we don't take choices seriously. We don't. The question is why? Well, as believers, often we don't take choices seriously because we're not told that choices are important, although they are. The scripture is full of people making choices and God responding. People make a good choice or people make a bad choice. They're not saved upon that choice, but people that have faith in God make choices. People that do not have faith in God make choices, and we are all held accountable. Now, those that are saved, our account has been credited to Christ, and Christ's account has been credited to us. So we can experience this beautiful justification But outside of that, we are enemies of God. Why? Why is that? Because most people live as if this life is all that there is. So um, how far ahead do you plan? Well, we plan for the end of the week when we get the paycheck. We plan for the end of the month when the bills are due. We plan for the end of the year when we have to do our taxes. We plan for the end of our working days when we can retire. All of those things are important. You need a paycheck, right? You need to do your taxes, right? That's, that's part of living here. You need to plan for retirement so you can retire. Yes, these, these things are all important, but we never live beyond that. We live as if that's all there is. We live as if we're only planning for this point in our lives when we aren't working anymore. 
And when we still need to survive, though we are not working, there is so much more than that. But we live as if this is all we have. We live as if many preachers, or at least two are saying, two different preachers, so I need to get the most out of this life that I can. Why? I need to live my best life now. Or I need to enjoy everyday life. Enjoy everyday living. That's what's being taught to us. So we make choices based on that framework of thinking. Now, now, I need it now. I need my best life now. I need to have everything now. I need to make sure that in this life I live the absolute best possible and most comfortable way I can. So because that's true, we don't take our choices seriously. And we don't take sin seriously. That's a big problem. Because sin doesn't just separate a person from God. It sets people apart as his enemies. So, you know, your unbelieving friends, don't be optimistic about this. Please, don't leave the service today and be optimistic about your unbelieving friends. They aren't just straying from the path. Oh, well, eventually they'll veer back. No. Your unbelieving friends are not just straying from the path. Okay, we, we cannot just hope that eventually they're going to make it there. No. They are at war with God Almighty. They are the enemies of God. You know, when we read passages from Jude, we need to rescue them from the fire. That's true. These people are in a very dangerous place. We need to take sin as seriously as God does. And there's one way, just one way to be reconciled. Just one. We are reconciled through Christ. Point number three, we are reconciled through Christ. Romans 5, 9 through 11 says this. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood much more still shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So justified by his blood. Something for the Christian that has happened. Justification has happened. It's not something you're working on. If you are in Christ, you are justified. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's just for a moment together define reconciled. So defining reconciled, it's used five times, this word is, in the Bible as a verb. And it literally means exchanged. Let's look at a couple of those verses, of those five verses. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11 says this, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be, there it is, reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So what we're talking about here is a broken relationship was exchanged for an unbroken relationship. What does that look like? 
Well, there's a sign up. This gentleman says, not far away from where I live, there's a sign. It begins a story. It says, please do not drink and drive. And there's a smaller sign underneath that that reads, in honor of Amy Wall. This man's name, John Avila, is speaking, and he pauses briefly before speaking in a firm voice, and he says, Amy Wall was a young lady that I killed in 1992 while driving drunk on the freeway. It's a shocking statement, but Avila is calm. He explains how tragic that night was. An understandable end to his life of alcoholism and addiction, and it took the life of a teenage girl. After the accident, Avila fled the scene. He does not remember that night, but he remembers what came afterwards. He was booked for second-degree murder at the Fresno County Jail. In the days that followed, he was overcome by what he had done. I was just looking for a way to kill myself, he says. I was afraid, I was angry, and I was sad. Two lives were destroyed that night. Joe Avila killed Amy Wall, but God wouldn't let their story end there. As God would have it, he put some people in my life who made me understand what reconciliation was and forgiveness was, Avila explains. Avila checked into a six-month sobriety program with the Salvation Army. A few months into the program, he came to a decision that would impact him, his family, and the Wall family too. Just before Easter 1993, he entered the courthouse and changed his plea to guilty. The judge had little faith that Avila could be saved from his alcoholism. I'm sentencing you to a maximum time in prison, which is 12 years, the judge ruled, and I just hope that you will change. Avila spent the next seven and a half years behind bars at California's Men's Colony in San Lupus, California. In prison, Avila spent his time working with hospice patients and served in the chapel. He shared the gospel with his fellow prisoners, the highlight of his incarceration. For the last year behind bars, he was transferred to a minimum security prison where he prepared for release. January 6th, 1999, Joe Avila went home to his family and friends. When the weekend arrived, he and his wife discussed attending church on Sunday, their first time together. New Hope Community Church was waiting to welcome Avila and his family with open arms. The pastor had been preparing the congregation for my return for several months, he says. Oak trees surrounded the church. Every one of those trees had a yellow ribbon around it, Joe recalls. There was a big banner at the entrance of the church that said, Welcome home, Joe. When Avila saw this, he knew that New Hope would become his home church, and he's been going ever since. But not long after Avila's release, his mentor called to say that Amy's brother, Derek, wanted to meet him. For years, Avila had prayed that God would help him reconcile with Amy's family. The first meeting with Derek was several hours long. Derek told Avila about all the things that he and Amy used to do together, how much he loved her. Now he had thought Avila was a monster who should get the electric chair for what he had done. Derek also explained that his family had been following Avila's progress. They knew he was trying to make his life better. Avila told Derek something he had a long wanted to say. I'm really sorry for what I've done, and I hope that someday you can forgive me. Later, Avila's mentor called him again to say that Rick Wall, 
Amy's father wanted to meet him too. Avila had a long meeting with Rick. Rick told him about two days a year they visit Amy's grave on her birthday and on the anniversary of her death. During that meeting, something miraculous occurred. Rick Wall, Amy's father, forgave me before I ever even asked him to forgive me. Avila says, Rick told him, Joe, I know what you've been doing for a long time now, even when you were in prison, and I approve of it. Avila's prayers for reconciliation were being answered. He next went to meet Amy's mom, who asked him to watch a three-hour video of Amy's life before their meeting. I really got to know Amy that night, he says, and how precious she was, and what a tragedy happened when I took her life. Avila admits it was painful to seek forgiveness from the walls, but he knew God could use that situation for his glory if he did. His relationship with the Wall family continued to grow, and both Avila and Derek were asked to participate in a restorative justice council event in front of hundreds of people. That night, Amy's father approached Avila, hugged him, and said, I love you, Joe. Years later, Rick's actions and words still affect Avila. I killed his daughter, he says, his voice thick with emotion. And he was able to give me a hug and say, I love you. And that is a true testament of the miracle of reconciliation and why Christ died on the cross. What a beautiful picture of reconciliation. You know, it's described further in Scripture in 2 Corinthians 5.18. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You and I have offended a holy God. Humanity has offended a holy God. We've broken his law by omission or commission. We have done what God's told us not to, and at times we have not done what God has told us to do. These are both sin. And just like Avila, it's price to be paid. Christ paid that price to bring us reconciliation. You know, that actual term, reconciliation, is only used four times in the Bible. Reconciled is used five times. Reconciliation is used four times. And it is a noun that means the exchange. We are reconciled by his death. Because in his death, he put an end to sin. Look what it says in Romans 5.10. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. He gave sin the death sentence and executed it. He gave sin the death sentence and executed it. But notice, it's by his life that we are saved. Because the resurrection means salvation. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we, we be saved by his life. What the resurrection means is you and I have been raised in Christ to new life. We've been raised to new life. A life that has freedom from the temptation to sin. 
We'll still be tempted. This life gives us freedom so that we do not have to yield to it anymore. We are not a slave to sin anymore. Temptation will come, but you and I don't have to obey it. You and I don't have to yield. Look what Romans 5.11 says. More than that, we also rejoice. We rejoice. So now we rejoice. Says this. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We rejoice in Christ because we have been reconciled. We rejoice in Christ because we have reconciliation. We possess it. Repaired. Restored. Reconciled. And all of these things center around the work of Christ. What's amazing about the gospel message is it's so different from any other method of salvation from any one of the hundreds of thousands of religions out there. All of these religions tell us a way to get to God. And the gospel tells us what God did to get to us. All of these other religions have a plan, steps that you must do to make sure that you can get to heaven. God, in Christ, took the steps to the cross to bring us into an eternal relationship with him. And it doesn't center around the work that you do or that I do. It centers all around the work of Christ. And because of that, we can rejoice. We can have joy in this life. 